Welcome to Spot on Safety, the program designed for safety professionals. Spot on Safety is brought to you by iWorkWise, providing safety knowledge when you need it. For more information about iWorkWise, go to iWorkWise.com. Welcome to Episode 1 of Spot on Safety with your hosts, Dan Smiley and Amy Does. Good morning, Amy. Morning, Dan. Now, as we start off on this first podcast and hopefully many podcasts to help bring your customers and other company safety officers up to speed on some of these issues, maybe we can talk a little bit about how you came into this industry and why you have an interest in it in the first place. Well, Dan, I, I used to run a processing ship um, out in Alaska and in the Bering Sea, um, and as a as a result of running that, I took a hard look at accidents at the company's directive, and uh, to make a long story short, we ended up in the VPP program. Um, so OSHA's Voluntary Protection Program, we were self-inspected. We had a lot of assistance by OSHA, um, or I had a lot of assistance in my education by OSHA through being a plant manager of a VPP site. One thing I realized is that having excellent safety wasn't that hard. So when you look at it from a common sense or, or a realistic perspective and not a paperwork perspective, it ends up not really taking that much work. You just have to put it into the culture and work it into the jobs. Um, as I uh, got more interested in safety, I left the company and started my own consulting business uh, to try to help others also get excellent safety records with as little uh, intrusion into their business as possible. And uh, at that time, one of the plants I used to work with blew up from an anhydrous ammonia spill. And uh, I became very interested in what had happened to my friends there. So over time, working in maritime environment with oil spills and uh, the initial reaction as the HAZWOPER standard came out and trying to meet that and figure it out, and then working with process safety management on uh, systems with highly hazardous chemicals. Um, it's, it's been a long road, but I'm quite involved in the HAZWOPER standard. So you turned around and created iWorkWise. Um, what is iWorkWise's specialty? iWorkWise specializes in practical compliance with federal and state standards um, and looks at it from a common sense and hands-on perspective rather than a checkbox compliance perspective of whether you have each line item. We're, we're trying to integrate the spirit of those laws and even the details of those laws into an operation, trying to help others uh, really have a safe operation. A lot of the regulations, both state and federal, uh, were written in blood Think that bad things that happen to people, and uh, we think it's always better to learn from someone else's mistakes instead of your own. But uh, also, you know, we still have to get the job done. So iWorkWise works at trying to bridge that gap between regulators and uh, where the rubber meets the road and help people put in simple things that can uh, really enhance their safety and the ability of their people to go home at night in very good shape. So. I work wise, um, we also dig in heavily to very technical issues. Uh, we don't try to skim over anything. 
So we, we go in with both feet to process safety management and HAZWOPER and lockout, tagout, and, and work hard on the technical details to make sure that the programs are very effective in the field. I know that as a merchant mariner and as an emergency responder myself, I've had an opportunity in years past to come in contact with some of iWorkWise's programs and always found them really helpful to me, which is why I was so excited to be able to work with you on bringing some of this information to the rest of the industry. I was at a exercise with, a, 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 I won't mention the name of the company, a, an organization that had a tank farm full of uh, uh, diesel fuel, about a million gallons of diesel fuel, and there was really a misunderstanding about how the Haswopper standard would apply to these employees. And I come in contact with this over and over again, even in companies who have been conducting Haswopper training for their people, their contractors, uh, for years and years. There continues to be a massive misunderstanding about what level of training people are required to have as they are engaged in emergency response operations and as they pass out of emergency response into post-emergency operations. So I was hoping that as we begin this first podcast, we might start with a little foundation on what is required to respond to emergencies, how much training is required, when do people have to refresh on these issues. Uh, you know, how long has Haswopper been around and what does that really mean? Well, I think what's really important to focus on is exactly what you bring up, is that the, uh, what's an emergency? And um, at iWorkWise, we focus on the paragraph Q of the HAZWOPER standard or emergency response. Uh, we don't get too involved in the hazardous waste operations on a day-to-day -day basis, but emergency response and post-emergency response um, are, are, uh, keep us quite busy um, with, with all the people that have to worry about that. So. One thing that people often miss, surprisingly, when they deal with emergencies and emergency response is what the definition is of an emergency. So it, OSHA, I think, was fairly careful when they wrote up the definition. They didn't write, anytime you have a chemical over IDLH, it's an emergency, which I see written in a plan sometimes. Uh, it's pretty telling on all the things they didn't write. But what they did write for the definition is it's a response effort by employees from outside the immediate release area or by other designated responders such as mutual aid groups or fire departments to an occurrence which results or is likely to result in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous substance. So an emergency is an occurrence which is likely to result in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous substance. So the key words there, the key word is uncontrolled um, and also in that previous sentence, they talked about response effort by employees outside the immediate release area. So they're making this a little gray, and I think they're doing that in order to make it effective at covering a wide array of situations. Um, they further go on to define uh, what an incidental release is here, where they talk about that as being responses to incidental releases of hazardous substances, where the substance can be absorbed neutralized or otherwise controlled at the time of the release by employees in the immediate release area or by maintenance personnel are not considered to be emergency responses within the scope of the standard. So if I'm operating a facility 
and I have an expectation that whatever I'm storing on the grounds, be it uh, flammable liquids like gasoline or diesel fuel or hazardous chemicals such as anhydrous ammonia, then I need to train my employees within the HAZWOPER standard. Well, first of all, you need to decide if your employees are going to respond to emergencies. So if they're going to take action to plug patch or otherwise stop the release or to contain it from a distance or somehow deal with what would be a release of something that's so hazardous that just any release is an emergency or a release of a quantity that would be hazardous, then if you expect them to do any kind of response whatsoever, you would fall on your HAZWOPER. The, the rule also gives you an option of leaving. So if you have a release of chemicals and uh, you don't want your employees to respond and you write an emergency action plan under 1910.38, uh, all that you can do is your employees evacuate and call for help. Um, if, if you do that and your business is set up in such a situation where that, that works for you, um, you can do that. But as soon as you have employees take action against an uncontrolled release in order to stop it or contain it, you fall under HAZWOPER. There are a number of different <laughs> levels of training under the HAZWOPER standard that I'd like to run through. And I'm wondering how the first one, first responder at the awareness level, fits in with what you're talking about. I was always under the impression that uh, even if you weren't going to proactively respond to the spill, if, if you were working around a product and um, you were going to have any role, including helping to evacuate people or, or uh, setting up a boundary, that you would at least have to have awareness level training. Is that the case? Yes, because uh, OSHA has put that in there. Again, if you have the quantity or you have the substance, on site and you could discover a leak, you would fall under the first responder awareness level of training, um, which is simply um, to understand what the risks are of an incident with that chemical, um, a understanding of the potential outcomes of a, of a release with that chemical, uh, ability to recognize a release or the presence of that chemical, um, the ability to identify what chemical it is if, if possible, um, and really at that point, all you're doing is making further notifications. So you're evacuating and making further notifications. So the HASCOM standard uh, in regular workplaces and this dovetail nicely, but for people who are likely to discover an uncontrolled release of a hazardous chemical, they, they do need to be aware of those things. So how much training is required to be certified as first responder at the awareness level? And does a person have to go through formal HAZWOPER training to, to get that? you have to get a certificate issued by someone? No, you just have to be trained to that level. And there is no hourly limit or requirement in order to uh, meet that level. The employer has to do kind of a performance-based training so that the people who could discover an emergency release uh, would be prepared in that way and know that short list of items um, how, how to recognize the, the emergency um, and understanding of what the potential outcomes are so that they know uh, when they need to leave and uh, 
the ability and the information in order to make the necessary notifications to get people who can deal with that uncontrolled release. So if a, per, a company was to give that kind of training uh, and you're not going through a HASWAP or certified um, organization that are maintaining records, what kind of record of training would you need? Can I just sign in on the my company training form and that says, you know, uh, first responder awareness level training and stick it in my training record? Yes. There's, there's no requirement on the awareness level. The requirement is is that those employees who, who could discover a release know those things. There's not a specific requirement for documenting at that level uh, or doing it in a certain way or having a certificate that's numbered um, that you know are maybe some of the requirements or the good practices of the higher levels. So those people really just need to know those things. And as if, if I were an OSHA inspector or a state Occupational Safety and Health Inspector, I would ask questions of the employees in the area of a process or in the area that work who could discover a release to see if they know who to call and if they could recognize an emergency when they saw one. So many of the uh, regulatory things that happen are post-accident and come out in the investigation stage. If someone were to be injured, because they tried to do something above their training level and OSHA came back and said, well, show me how you train people at the awareness level. How would a person do that? Well, I think that you could do it with a training roster that you discussed, or they would certainly interview the employees who worked in that area post-accident to see what kind of training you provided. And you, you probably would want a record there so you could uh, demonstrate that you did do some training. And also, it's, it's very appropriate. I think it's a good requirement that employee, employers take the time to let people who are working around a large quantity of a chemical or, a, or just a, a chemical that's extremely hazardous. Uh, I think it's something anyone would want to know. If you're working around a chemical like that, you, wa you want to know some basics about it and when the heck you should get out of there and who you should call uh, for help if you have a, a big problem. And that is some uh, basic responsibility, I think, on the, on the part of employers. So um, OSHA could find out from interviews of their employees and OSHA would also um, certainly ask you if there was documentation of any kind of training. Um, so e either way, I think, but uh, you, you have that responsibility to actually provide it, and what OSHA is doing in this particular requirement is putting the emphasis on whether you actually did it, not necessarily whether people went to a class and fell asleep and signed off. Uh, the important part is do they know these things? The next level of training is first responder at the operations level. If I've decided as an employer that I'm going to go beyond the awareness level, what kind of training is required and what can a responder trained at the operations level actually do? Well, the first responder operations level is, is the next level of training. And a person at that level is restricted to, to responding defensively. So on defensive response, OSHA gives us some, some examples even of defensive responses in their uh, booklet for marine oil spill response workers. 
um, booklet 3172. Um, and for an oil spill, uh, the defensive response or what they'd be allowed to do is, is boom, booming operations, participate in booming operations at a safe distance, uh, shoreline impact assessments, manual pickup and removal of irritant levels of oil and oily debris, uh, damming or diking at a safe distance, loading oil into receptacles at a safe distance. Uh, they could be emergency medical personnel um, that are working in contaminated areas, staging managers, people who operate vacuum trucks, security people, uh, people who enforce the safety zones and keep uh, people into the respective areas where they're qualified to be, um, and people who operate skimmers or boats that are operating at a safe distance. And you can further take that oil spill, those oil spill examples that OSHA gives and apply it to other chemical releases as well. What they're looking for is, is people who are at the first responder operations level can only respond defensively. And they are not uh, getting into uh, situations where they're needing respiratory equipment or uh, I think there's some other examples. If there, uh, you certainly wouldn't want a person trained to the operations level, which is just an eight-hour initial class and an eight-hour annual refresher. Um, you wouldn't want them uh, participating in anything where they're over the PELs or the permissible exposure limits. You would, they wouldn't be someone who would wear a respirator, um, and you wouldn't want them in an area where there was a potential for an emergency to develop. So you said that's an eight-hour training. Is that something the employer can provide themselves, or do you need to go outside to provide, get a contractor to provide that training? You know, none of these, uh, none of the HAZWOPER training levels that are required require specifically a contractor. But what they do require is that the person who provides the training has the skills and competence and technical know-how to do that. So that can be a person in-house, but Considering it, it, the estimates are it takes about eight hours of work to, prefer, to prepare one hour of training, and that's for a, a skilled person, um, that's a pretty big commitment to develop that training in-house. If you had an unusually outstanding person who was a good instructor and that kind of time to dedicate to developing a program, you can develop any of these in-house, but um, your, your program will certainly be under scrutiny if you have a problem to make sure that it meets the requirements of the HAZWOPER standard, um, that, that all appropriate things are being covered in that class, that people are learning what they're supposed to. Um, and there is there are some requirements uh, or there are some guidelines in OSHA's non-mandatory appendices to this standard that uh, talk about issuing certificates and making sure it's designated what PPE levels people can respond to. So. There are some technical aspects, I think, that are discouraging to employers to to, uh, to have them develop the classes. The other thing is that their people have to stay up on the latest and greatest response techniques. You want the training not to be a rehash of everything they've had in all their previous years, but you want that training to build on previous training, and you also certainly want to integrate any new monitoring equipment or response equipment or response techniques. So whoever is the trainer really needs to stay up in the industry on all these things and uh, 
be doing an adequate job. And I think OSHA's put adequate safeguards in the standard to try to make sure that happens. Whether it's in-house or contracted, even if you contract it, it's not a guarantee it's good training. And the responsibility is the employers to make sure that the training is adequate. The next level of training is hazardous materials technician. Uh, what kind of training is involved in that, and what can a person that's designated as a hazardous materials technician actually do? The hazardous materials technician is the person who responds offensively to plug, patch, or otherwise stop the release, whether it's an oil spill or other chemical release. These people work in the hot zone. They're working near the chemicals. They have risk of exposure, and they need 24 hours of initial training and an eight-hour annual refresher. Another question that I often get is, you know, what do I have to know to be the incident commander? I'm setting up my drills or I'm setting up my response plan and I'm designating one or two or three people who are going to be my incident commanders. Do they require training? Well, I think a lot of people fall short in this area. The, the requirement is, is that the incident commander needs to be trained to the technician level. So anyone who's the incident commander um, corporate people or plant managers or uh, people who normally work in that kind of role of authority, they also need to be 24-hour technician trained. And in addition, OSHA gives a list in the standard of other things they need to know. And beyond the 24-hour training that all their responders have, they also have to be able to implement the incident command system. So. OSHA doesn't give, a, they need eight or 16 hours of training in the incident command system. That's a, they're giving a performance standard here. They, that person, whoever your incident commander is, or whoever they are, um, they have to be able to implement uh, the employer's incident command system. So that's a skill that they have to have. They have to be able to implement and know the employer's emergency response plan. They have to understand the hazards and risks associated with employees working in protective clothing. They have to know how to implement the local emergency response plan. They have to know of the state emergency response plan and of the federal emergency response team. They also have to know the importance of de decontamination procedures. Um, so that's in addition to the 24-hour training. So your incident commander um, gets that 24-hour training, and it has to have a good handle on uh, those other things as well. Another thing that's come up in industry lately, and it really hit a high mark during the oil spill response down in San Francisco Bay when the container ship Costco Busan struck the Bay Bridge and released 58,000 gallons of heavy fuel oil, of bunker C fuel oil, and that was the use of volunteers for cleanup. Uh, that became a, a real political issue, and in the end, uh, California did utilize volunteers to conduct cleaning on the beaches, and there was a lot of talk about Haswopper, and I'm, I'm looking now at the uh, incident-specific preparedness review uh, done in California where it, it says... Uh, that in the end, a training plan was put together using a four-hour California OSHA Haswopper course. Under federal OSHA, if you were trying to use volunteers to clean up uh, chemical spills, what kind of training would they be required to have? 
Well, there is a, some provision in the HAZWOPER standard for post-emergency response cleanup. And this is a pretty tricky area. So if you're utilizing people to uh, work in this category or clean up post-emergency, um, you better dig into this area and have a good familiarity with, with what to expect. But there are some OSHA guidance documents out there. Um, one is that, uh, that publication 3172 that they have on uh, marine oil spill response workers under the HAZWOPER standard. Um, it, it does depend somewhat on, uh, one, OSHA regulates employers. So let's, let's get that out of the way right away. Um, OSHA doesn't regulate uh, volunteers. Volunteers are not employ, employees. So OSHA is restricted under the OSHA Act to just re regulating uh, conditions that employees work under. So on a volunteer basis, of course, even though you wouldn't fall under OSHA, OSHA's done a lot of work to provide guidelines and people responding to these spills safely. So it would probably be good to work with the state authorities to come up with something like Cal OSHA did at the beach cleanup of four to eight hours of, uh, based on what OSHA's documents are, four to eight hours of training and what they need to know. But those volunteers um, would also be, uh, should be restricted to not working in respirators, to not being exposed above the PELs of anything, um, and, and not working in areas where there's a potential emergency, where a potential emergency could develop. So there's a little bit of ambiguity around the use of volunteers and also some around beach cleanup, but for employees performing beach cleanup with those limited hazards in a situation that, that uh, doesn't expose them to very active chemical hazards, um, the OSHA requirement would be eight hours of training in order to do it. So um, in California, we saw that, that uh, Cal OSHA, who's, who is usually stricter than federal OSHA, uh, came up with a compromise for volunteers for four hours. But certainly, whoever's working around a chemical spill or in the post-emergency cleanup should have adequate training so that they can protect themselves from any conditions that they would encounter. It does sound like a complicated issue. But in Washington State, the Department of Ecology issued new oil spill response regulations last year, and one of the provisions under those regulations is to be able to utilize uh, not volunteers, uh, these would be paid people, but to be able to utilize other people from industry, for instance, uh, uh, fishing vessel operators to be able to tow oil boom or help uh, deploy protection strategies with boom. Uh, under those circumstances, it sounds like we kind of touched on it a little bit uh, earlier. What kind of a training would that person be required? They're not at they're not at the initial release zone. They're not taking proactive action to stop the release. They are working in the vicinity of the product. Uh, well, what would that take? Well, looking at OSHA's. Uh guidance of the HAZWOPER standard, it, it uh, could be one of two things. Um, it could be a defensive response. They're out of, the, out of the area and in a safe distance, which would be an eight-hour training that's required and an eight-hour refresher if they were to do this over a number of years. Um, or also, there could be a, a chance that personnel um, who 
uh, in the OSHA standard under paragraph Q4, there's an allowance for skilled support personnel and their personnel, not necessarily an employer's own employees who are skilled in the operations of certain equipment. And they use some examples of earth moving or digging equipment or cranes. Um, and they're temporarily needed to perform emergency support work. Um, and uh, who may be exposed to the hazards at the emergency response scene. Well, there's not time to necessarily give those people training uh, to meet the eight hour requirement, but they allow, they allow um, that to pull those people into a response and to do what's necessary in order to take care of it. Those people are given an initial briefing at the site um, that covers personal protective equipment, what chemical hazards are involved and what duties are to be performed. Um, so there's a little gray area there but typically for marine oil spill response and someone who's driving a boat with a boom that's not in a hazardous area, um, if they're your own employees or you know, you'd want them to have the eight hour training, if they could fall under the skilled support personnel, OSHA allows a site briefing. So if I were to hire a landing craft operator to run people to a beach, his vessel was actually sailing through a product to get to the beach through monitoring, we've shown that there's no flammability or respiratory hazard. Would the crew of that vessel qualify as skilled support workers? Uh, you can only use that qualification if it's something that you don't have employees around that could do. Um, so you use someone to do that in a pinch, so to speak. So what would be more appropriate is to train them to the eight-hour standard to work in that environment. Um, the skilled support personnel is, is really, like they're saying, uh, you know, crane operators or uh, backhoe operators or people like that who may not be uh, available from the, the pool of skilled workers that, are, that uh, normally respond to oil spills and things like that. So it would all depend on who else was available, I think. Um, but as a, as a regular practice, I, I, what I would advise is that uh, if, if a company were to ask me is that they, that person should probably have the eight hour uh, first, re first responder class and, and that kind of training appropriate. If you were to bring in uh, some other kind of support vessels, you've had a very large uh, oil spill you know, maybe uh, Exxon Valdez size thing. And so you're reaching out to as many vessels as possible. You're bringing in ferries and cruise ships and this kind of thing. People that couldn't reasonably have been expected to be needed. You would never have an idea of who would be available at any given time in any given location. And they're not directly involved in, in in a cleanup or contact with the product, but they're in the area, maybe the vessel's actually in the, in the oil, uh, would those people qualify as, um, you know, for the briefing as opposed to the eight-hour house whopper training? I don't think so. I think that they would fall, they wouldn't necessarily be skilled support personnel, and that's, that's the exemption right there from the eight-hour training. They have to be skilled, particularly at some, some skill you don't normally possess as a responder or as a spiller. So um, 
those are the people that that, uh, that need the briefing so they knew what to do to protect themselves in the emergency so they could perform their limited task um, and you can utilize their skill in order to move forward in your response. But if you're using people in your cleanup, um, I think that it would be much better to take a look at publication 3172 and there's some pretty good tables in there and some flow charts on what levels of training people need based on their duties and uh, to uh, base your training on, on those guidelines. Well, this is a pretty complicated subject. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours and hours and never cover you know, every possible angle of training. I think this was a pretty good uh, introduction, a pretty good first start. You know, we're already uh, you know, 20 minutes into it. Um, before we, we wrap this up and maybe you know, go on to a some other subjects. Anything else you'd like to say about Hazwapper training, kind of in closing? Uh, no. I, I, well, I, I think there there maybe is something. Is I one of the things I find in the field that employers are lacking is the um, adequate attention to what's in an emergency and what their people are likely to be to encounter. If there's a potential for an emergency release of chemicals that company or that employer needs to take a hard look at what their employees are doing um, and going to do in that situation, and they need to give those employees guidance on what is expected of them and the tools they need in order to perform, to get out of there safely or to respond safely. So any company that has a quantity of hazardous materials around that could have an uncontrolled release needs to sit down and make an assessment um, of what that potential is and could they hurt their employees in that area and then train those people and come up with a strategy. Come up with a basic strategy. Are we leaving? So I'm just going to let people know that these chemicals exist in this area and how to recognize a spill and all that and make some notifications on their way out of the area. Um, and that would be an emergency action plan. And then they need to follow the rules for emergency action plans in 1910.38. If they're going to uh, actually mount a response or, you know, uh, close off ventilation or shut down ventilation or, or dike or dam spilling product from a distance or any of those things, that now we're talking about uh, a response. And if you're going to have your employees respond, they need to have the tools and the knowledge to be able to do that safely. So now you're talking about having to develop an emergency response plan at your site or at your facility. So I think as a flow chart for employers, if you got these, if you have quantities of this stuff around, you've got to make a decision. Um, if you're going to go the emergency action plan route and just evacuate, or you're going to mount any kind of response. And as soon as you mount any kind of response, you, you've got to take a long, hard look at the, the training levels required by the HAZWOPER standard and the other requirements for emergency response plans in the HAZWOPER standard. And then develop a plan that's common sense and that you can train people to so that they don't kill themselves in these situations or get injured or get long-term problems from exposure to chemicals. So. I guess that would be the one thing I would add is uh, that I, I don't see employers necessarily right now consistently make, making those decisions, making a good initial assessment and then making a strategy decision on what their employees are going to do. They need to let their employees.
employees know. Um, it can't be hit or miss. Like, oh, if an accident happens, the employees get to decide, well, I'm going to run into it or I'm going to run away from it. It's the employer's job to give those employees guidance on, on what to do. So hopefully people start embracing that and they, they can make an intelligent decision pre-emergency on what they want their folks to do um, so that they can uh, have a safe job. This all dovetails nicely into emergency response plans and emergency action plans, which I think will be our topic for next week. We can just carry this in straight through to uh, talking about what is required under your emergency response plan. How would, how would you go about mounting a response after you've decided that that's what you're going to do? So look forward to that discussion next Saturday morning. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Spot on Safety. If you want to ask a question or leave a comment, you can email us. The address is spotonsafety at iworklife.com.